is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So right now, I'd like to share the third part of my series on the history of Florida, Fortresses on Sand. And this one will be on the Spanish colonial era. And I intend to continue this series up to recent times, but my next lecture will be an installment on another ongoing series on the great archaeological finds, and that will be on the library of Ashurbanipal, the largest cache of records ever found from ancient Mesopotamia, and that one will be exclusive to patrons on Patreon. You may have seen, if you follow the podcast on Twitter, you might also have seen that I was interviewed and quoted for an article in Cincinnati Magazine about the Scottish and Irish travelers that regularly gather in Cincinnati. And the author of that article, the journalist, spoke to me because she saw that I had gotten a lot of response for my lecture on the history of British and Irish travelers, which apparently seems to be the most accessible, existing, scholarly discussion of the history and background of the travelers. So I'll link to that article too. So obviously I've had my finger in a lot of pies, but right now I'd like to go back again to where I left off in the history of Florida, basically at the point where Pedro Menendez de Aviles had founded the colony of St. Augustine, in northeastern Florida, which then lasted and was able to survive through crises and attacks and become what we now know today as the oldest European-founded town in the United States. So this era that I'm going to talk about from this point is a period of almost 200 years, basically from the creation of St. Augustine in 1565, up until the handover of control of Florida in 1763. These two centuries were a time of constant struggle to maintain and grow the Spanish foothold in Florida in the face of disease, hurricanes, and frequent conflicts both with indigenous people and then increasingly with other European powers. And this era of of Florida history seems to me, to be very uncovered. There are archives, including court records and church records, that exist mainly in St. Augustine, but they've been very little examined by scholars, and there's very little published information that one can find about this whole era. And I had to search for basically scattered articles, lectures, and so on in order to piece together a picture of this time period. And there are practically no books at all about Spanish Florida after 1600. So the era that I discussed last time, the so-called contact period, when Spanish and French explorers and colonizers first began to appear in Florida and there were dramatic confrontations and wars, that has been discussed a lot more. And books and and articles have much more information about the chronicles and the communications from that time in the 1500s. And then it seems to just drop off and almost vanish from the historical scholarship after 1600. 
But as far as I can understand and reconstruct, it seems that this Spanish colonial era can be broken into basically three periods, each of which is quite different. First, the Menendez period with aggressive expansion and colonization early on, about 1565 to 1590. Then the missionary period from about 1590 to 1700. And then the Bourbon period from 1700 to 1763. So a period of retrenchment and remilitarization. So you can basically break it into these three distinct periods. And the first one I'm calling the Menendez period, when Florida was under the leadership, the often very aggressive and skillful leadership of the first governor, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, and also then his nephew, Pedro Menendez Marquez. And this was the most ambitious period in Spanish colonial history in Florida. And this is when the Spanish regime was diplomatically aggressive and expansionary, and it saw some limited successes, but most of its ambitions ended up being unrealized. And this time of expansion and gaining of new footholds really stopped not long after the death of Pedro Menendez de Aviles. So St. Augustine, as I described last time, was basically a small settlement and fortress protected by simply earthworks and cannons that were brought off of the ships to this little stronghold on the on an inlet on the Atlantic coast of Florida. Soon after the founding of St. Augustine, the governor appointed judges and magistrates to preside over law courts using Spanish codes, so they did make this initial attempt to kind of plant Spanish civilization in Florida. And there was, it seems, a period of some social stabilization where a sort of European colonial society did take root. It was a fairly small civilian colony. It probably took several years even to reach a thousand people. And it had a military garrison with several hundred soldiers and Catholic missions. And early on, it seems they were mostly Jesuit missions. The population of St. Augustine was a mixture of people of European, African, and indigenous American ancestry. And the Catholic Church, as was common throughout the Spanish Empire, the Catholic Church encouraged intermarriage and melding of these populations. And the first marriage recorded as being performed in St. Augustine, and in fact the first Christian marriage known to have been performed in any form in North America above the Rio Grande, took place at St. Augustine, and it was an interracial marriage. At least that's how we would term it today. At the time, the term was mestizaje, mixing. And in the fall of 1565, so just a matter of weeks after the creation of St. Augustine, a woman named Luisa de Abrego, who was a free domestic servant who had come to Florida from Spain, married a man named Miguel Rodriguez. And it seems that uh, Luisa de Abrego and Miguel Rodriguez had traveled together from Spain to St. Augustine. And Luisa had had, it seems, a previous marriage in Spain when she was only 15 years old. She married a Spanish man. But she said she never consummated that marriage, and hence 
there was some question or ambiguity as to whether she was free to marry again or if they were engaging in bigamy. So that's part of why the details of their lives were recorded in legal documents. So it seems that she maybe left Spain in order to get away from that relationship and then in Florida married Miguel Rodriguez. And this is revealing for a number of reasons, possibly for one thing that these two people might have left Europe and gone to Florida for more freedom or to escape from sort of social ties and bonds that held them back in Spain. And so in this way, the colonies offered a sort of escape valve. And this, again, sets a pattern that this sort of marriage across ethnic lines was pretty common, especially when there were comparatively fewer European women in the colony as compared to European men. So a lot of marriages crossed those lines and boundaries. And St. Augustine, it seems, developed gradually as a military and missionary center and as a port with some degree of trade. But the main purpose, the object that made St. Augustine worthwhile from the Spanish point of view was as a military and naval base to fend off possible piracy or attacks upon the treasure fleet, the enormous armed fleet that carried gold and silver each year from the Americas to Spain. Now, from Menendez's point of view, that was not enough. He had higher ambitions and hopes for what Florida could accomplish for the Spanish Empire, and he saw it as a realm of colonization that could offer greater benefits and could enhance and expand the power of Spain. So under his governorship from 1565 to 72, and he, it seems, was a really aggressive, authoritarian ruler, basically like a little emperor of the colony, in a similar kind of mold, who sort of left his stamp on the colony of Florida in a similar sort of way to other powerful governors like, say, Peter Stuyvesant in New Netherlands. During his seven years from 1565 to 72, Menendez used St. Augustine as a base of a double effort to expand both to the north and to the south and to try to really secure control of the whole peninsula. And Menendez was driven by zealous devotion to Catholicism and antipathy towards the Protestant powers, especially England, an ambition to expand and glorify the Spanish Empire, and also a personal motivation, his hope of finding his son, who apparently had been shipwrecked and then disappeared somewhere far to the south, near the southern end of Florida. So he is driven by all of these different motives to try to expand and create a chain of Spanish control up and down Florida and further up into North America. So he made attempts to pacify the Calusa, the main large military power down in South Florida, and to plant colonies and settlements down to the south. And also he resumed the long-standing Spanish effort to create a lasting colony somewhere farther north along the Atlantic coast, which could serve as a site of communication back and forth from North America to Europe. So Menendez made this sort of two-pronged attack on the North American continent, and the two lines of advance really happened simultaneously, with Menendez and other officials shuttling sometimes back and forth, north and south. But to look at the north firstly, 
1566, so just the year after the foundation of St. Augustine, Menendez traveled north and established a fortress with a garrison of 200 men on St. Catherine's Island on the coast of what's now Georgia. And the indigenous people in that area were the Wale. And the Wale, it seems at this time, were suffering from severe drought. And according to Spanish accounts, Menendez encountered the Wale just as they were preparing to ceremonially sacrifice captives that they had taken from a neighboring people as a way of trying to bring about rain. And again, this may or may not be true. And supposedly Menendez intervened, persuaded the Wale not to make the sacrifice, and instead to return the captives back to their home country as a way of gaining favor from the god of the Spaniards, the Christian god. And after they did so, it then rained, and so this gave credibility to Menendez's message and helped to pave the way for missionaries to evangelize and convert the Wale. Now, whether or not that is true, the Spanish then advanced further up. They used St. Catherine's Island as a foothold and advanced further up the, the coast and established an outpost which they called Santa Elena on Paris Island in what's now South Carolina. And at this point, the stretch of Spanish control had extended so far that Menendez really couldn't remain directly involved. And he had to go back to St. Augustine, and so he appointed a Spanish adventurer named Juan Pardo to explore from Santa Elena into the interior of the continent and to establish further outposts in the land in the hope of creating a secure land route. Their idea was that they could somehow create a land route running along the Appalachians and all the way down to Mexico so that there would then be a sort of road or pathway all the way from Mexico to the Spanish outposts on the Atlantic coast and from there to the sea lanes back to Spain. So in 1567, Pardo and his team marched through what's now South Carolina and into the Appalachian Mountains, crossed into Tennessee, and established a chain of small fortresses along the way. But all of these were then attacked. The, so these small forts were... They were small, they were not terribly well defended, their supply lines were stretched very long and thin, and so all of them were fairly easily attacked and destroyed by indigenous people or were simply abandoned by the Spanish in the following year, in 1568. Now, the footholds at St. Catherine's Island and Paris Island did persist for a number of years into the 1580s, but then they started to come under attack by English privateers and pirates, particularly by Francis Drake. And these attacks escalated until in 1587, the fortress at Santa Elena on Paris Island was abandoned, and the forces in that entire northern area were finally withdrawn southward and concentrated back at St. Augustine. So they were forced to retrench at that power base. Now, as for the immediate area around St. Augustine, in basically what's now north-central, northeastern Florida. Menendez traveled around with a diplomatic party and visited various Indian towns and would ceremonially make diplomatic gifts 
to the leaders of these towns and then with their permission would erect a cross which to the indigenous people we don't know exactly what that would have signified but the spanish used it as a marker of a site where they had made a diplomatic contact and where they then would set up a mission church so they sort of in this way blazed the trail for missionism through northern florida and menendez built up a network of alliances a lot of them very personal alliances with indigenous leaders, which then ensured some degree of security and stability for the colony, at least within the Timucua zone. So by this time, there were numerous translators from both communities who were bilingual with Spanish and Timucua, and there was extensive communication and trade. The, the indigenous people provided a certain kind of security umbrella for St. Augustine. But the situation was more complicated when the Spanish wanted to go further south, and there were greater language barriers that had to be overcome. And so a very crucial resource that made it possible for Menendez and the Spanish Empire to penetrate down into South Florida was the acquisition of a translator. So Menendez's interpreter, who was so critical in his missions to the south, was named Escalante Fontaneda, who was originally a Spanish Creole colonist from Colombia in South America. And he'd been in Florida for decades because in 1549 he was shipwrecked in South Florida and was taken captive by the Calusa. And for 17 years he was held captive. Many of his fellow shipwrecked survivors were sacrificed or enslaved. But he was able to survive, and he provided the earliest known written description of the country, with the first mention of various villages and towns that would later become important. And in 1566, Menendez was able to go into South Florida and very carefully make contact with the Calusa, negotiate the release of Fontaneda back into Spanish custody, where he could then serve as a translator and intermediary, not only with the Calusa, but with all of these various southern nations and tribes. They took a group of soldiers guided by Fontaneda south and explored the Florida Keys and the 10,000 Islands, the sort of complex coastline along the southwestern corner of Florida that was on the edge of the Calusa territory. They then made direct diplomatic contact again with the Calusa and Menendez reportedly met personally with the Calusa king whom the Spanish called Carlos, which again is probably a, a sort of mistranslation that they were taking some title like Calusa or Calus and changing it into the Spanish name Carlos. This ruler was a young king. Uh, the Spanish viewed him as somewhat naive, possibly pliable, and they negotiated a fairly favorable treaty of coexistence between the Spanish and the Calusa kingdom. And as part of the ceremonial sealing of this agreement, the Calusa presented to Menendez, the king's sister, as a bride. So it was sort of sealing this diplomatic relationship with a marriage, the sort of thing that all kinds of societies do around the world. 
But there was a complication in that Menendez was already married. He had a wife back in Spain, as many of the Spanish colonists knew, and he was a devout Catholic and would have been very concerned about the sin of bigamy, which was taken very seriously by the Catholic Church. So it seems that what he did is he sort of allowed the Calusa to think that he was accepting this sister as a bride. But what they actually did was took her and basically handed over to the custody of some Spanish ladies who took her to Cuba, had her baptized and renamed to the Christian name, and sort of kept her there as a sort of concubine slash hostage. And we don't know exactly how she was treated or what sort of contact she had with Menendez, but she was more or less treated as just a sort of diplomatic pawn in Spanish custody, not as a wife. And this caused insult to the Calusa king, who saw this as kind of a slight to him and his family. Now, meanwhile, Menendez was still really hoping to find his son, who he hoped was somewhere in the custody or in captivity among some tribe or nation in South Florida. And so he took his team and advanced northward into the Tocobaga territory, which was the main nation around the sort of Tampa Bay area, further up the Gulf Coast. And he made a similar peace deal with the Tocobaga to the one that he'd already concluded with the Calusa. And this then was the final insult to the Calusa because the Tocobaga were their traditional enemies. So they saw this as kind of two-timing by Menendez. So this was a final insult, and the Calusa then sent war parties north and attacked the Spanish party. And reportedly, King Carlos himself at one point even personally went on one of these attack raids and tried to kill Menendez with a spear, but Menendez was saved by his plate armor breastplate. So after this skirmish, Menendez then sent another small away team south back into the Calusa territory with the goal of assassinating the king. And they were able to do this. We don't know the exact details, but they were able to kill the young king and they made an alliance with the older war general, whom they called Felipe, who had been kind of like the power behind the throne this whole time and had been resentful of the young king and felt that he deserved to be the ruler. So naturally they played upon this divide and antagonism, made an alliance with Felipe, who then took the throne for himself. But not long after, Felipe then turned on another Spanish party and in that attack killed a nephew of Menendez himself. So now they're at war again, and so the Spanish send in another team to assassinate Felipe. And after that point, having lost both of these rulers in fairly quick succession, the Calusa kingdom was destabilized and gradually spiraled into disorder through the 1570s and 80s, and eventually they basically disappear from the historical record. Now, the following year, in 1567, Menendez went on another trip down into the south, but this time landed on the eastern coast, on the Atlantic shore, instead of the Gulf Coast. And he encountered a people called the Ais, who I've, I've mentioned before, but who are fairly mysterious. And this encounter probably happened on the shore around what's now Vero Beach. It led to a cold standoff 
rather than a productive diplomatic exchange, it led to a cold standoff, and the Spanish simply withdrew without causing a war. Thereafter, Menendez returned for a time to Spain, and while in Spain, he was appointed as adelantado, so basically as sort of superior, uh, overarching governor, and as governor of Cuba. So he now has sort of multiple offices managing the Spanish strongholds, both in Florida and the West Indies. This was a great promotion with many more new duties and powers. And he spent the next several years then shuttling frequently between Florida and Cuba, mainly trying to seek out and combat pirates, stateless renegades or privateers and sea dogs sponsored by the Northern European states. In 1571, he shipwrecked and went ashore again in Ayis territory. So he knows that these are a fairly hostile or at least unfriendly people, and he's without a vessel. But he was able to trek back north on foot with a group of 17 men all the way up the coast back to St. Augustine. And then just days after returning to St. Augustine, English privateers appeared near the shore, menacing the town. And so they had to quickly scramble to repair and improve their fortifications, and they were able to repel the attack. The following year, in 1572, Menendez again went south and landed among the Tequesta, the people who it seems lived all the way at the far southeastern corner of Florida around what's now Miami, and he met with their leaders at a sort of capital town, basically at the site of what's now Miami, which they called El Portal, like the port or the gateway. And they were able to establish peaceable relations with the Tequesta, and they also were able to take on several of them to act as translators with the Taino, There had been enough communication back and forth between the Caribbean and the Tequesta in Florida that some of them could interpret uh, the Arawak language and hence could help in Menendez's efforts to pacify and control the Taino people in Cuba. Menendez also placed a team of Jesuit missionaries there in the area of El Portal in the Tequesta kingdom. But... These missionaries, it seems, gave up after just one year and withdrew back to St. Augustine. And this might be indicative to some degree of this very early period where missionism did not advance as quickly or as effectively and where it was directed largely by Jesuits, who are, of course, a very learned priestly order and one that puts a great emphasis on correct doctrine. And so the process for converting people to Roman Catholicism under Jesuit direction could be much more complicated and arduous and might involve learning Latin prayers, learning creeds, maybe even learning to read. And maybe it was not so effective and or fruitful. And so it seems that these sort of early Jesuit missions largely failed. Later in that year in 1572, Menendez went back on another trip to Spain His health rapidly deteriorated. Maybe he had contracted some disease, which then brought him low in Spain, and he died two years later in 1574. So by the time Menendez died, the colony of Florida was 
reasonably securely founded. There was a fairly strong Spanish foothold in Florida with various kinds of outposts, but with, of course, the main power center at St. Augustine. But the colony was never profitable. There were no good cash crops that they had found that could be grown in the soil and climate of that area. And of course, there were no finds of gold or silver like in South America or Mexico. The harsh conditions of the tropics, the diseases, the storms, the hostile indigenous people, all of these conditions led to frequent mutinies and desertions by the soldiers in the garrison. And the relations between the colony and the Indians in the region, which were so crucial, were really managed almost entirely through Menendez himself. It was, he was really the, the hub of all of it. So this network of alliances and relationships largely collapsed after he died. And the colony all through this period and for many years afterwards was constantly dependent on the annual situado or subsidy from Spain in order to keep up the fortifications, to keep the soldiers in arms, and to basically buy off and maintain this, these sort of delicate relations with the indigenous nations. So it was in those ways, it was really still in a precarious position. Now, after Menendez went back to Spain, he basically handed over the leadership of the colony unofficially to his nephew, Pedro Menendez Marquez, who took up management, and then after the governor died in Spain, then Pedro Menendez Marquez was formally appointed as the new governor. And Marquez, both before and after he formally took up leadership, he did several things that had a significant lasting effect on the colony. Firstly, in 1575, he brought the first group of Franciscan friars to Florida. And this was a turning point in a lot of ways because the Franciscans' approach to evangelization and conversion was different from the Jesuits. They emphasized sort of simple, plain faith, speaking in kind of plain language, speaking to the heart. And they did not emphasize learning and correct doctrine the way Jesuits did. And they were, you could say, a lot more free about the conversion process. They put a much greater emphasis on just baptizing a lot of people quickly rather than intense screening. And so in some ways you can see they were more geared and more suited to bringing in a lot of converts among the indigenous population than the Jesuits were. He also began the first operation to quarry what they called coquina, which is a soft, porous limestone, basically a stone of just pressed shells that is barely crystallized enough to even call limestone. And he began the quarrying of this coquina on the barrier islands to then bring back to use in buildings in the town. So what had been created previously from just wood and thatch, the sort of things that could easily be destroyed in hurricanes or floods, they, it starts to be replaced with something more permanent. And it seems that all in all, Pedro Menendez Marquez was reasonably capable, but still there was little that he could do realistically, other than just hold on and secure St. Augustine. 
In the 1580s, he withdrew the colonists out of Santa Elena, as I mentioned before, in what's now South Carolina, and removed them back down into St. Augustine. Francis Drake directly attacked St. Augustine in 1586 and burned much of the town, but the residents mostly survived by withdrawing into the woods and waiting for the fires to die out. So they were able to survive, return, and rebuild the town. And moreover, some structures even probably survived that had been built by that time out of Coquina. And this rebuilding after the Francis Drake attack and after the sort of brief outbreak of war between Spain and England in 1587 and 88, after that, this was followed by a period of renewal and reassertion starting around 1590. And this begins then what we can call the missionary period, which lasts for about a century or a bit more. There was a shift in Spanish policy towards more religious-driven colonization. And I should make clear, this was an imperially directed and empire-wide change in policy. And it starts really in 1574, so just before, just a few weeks before Pedro Menendez de Aviles died in Spain, King Philip II issued new decrees requiring church involvement in the creation and extension of colonies. And there had been a long power struggle going all the way back into the early 1500s between the conquistadores, who just wanted to sort of press their military advantage, conquer, raid, exploit indigenous labor, and on the other hand, the church, which wanted a more civilized and orderly colonization that emphasized religious conversion. And in, 15, in the 1570s, King Philip II was on the throne, and he was a very devout Catholic who really surrounded himself and managed his royal court through churchmen. And so he really came down on the side of using the church as the advance shock troops of empire, rather than literal fighters and conquistadores, using missionaries, especially like Franciscans, who would sort of spread the faith first and then lay out a pathway then for Spanish rule. And in 1588, the governor in St. Augustine granted a tract of land at the southern end of the town to the Franciscan order. So they now have a pretty large foothold of valuable real estate that can depend on a certain degree of security from the proximity to St. Augustine. And the Franciscans built a large wooden friary and church, which they called Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, or the Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. And through the 1590s, this friary was used as a base for a renewed missionism which maybe was spurred on also to a, to a great degree by English activity and the, the brief short-lived English colony at Roanoke Island, which created fears of Protestant encroachment into North America. So there was a sort of campaign of missionism, an effort to convert particularly the powerful leaders of indigenous tribes and towns. And this provided a very convenient way to stretch limited resources, right? Because there was limited manpower and limited money in St. Augustine itself, they could benefit by harnessing 
the manpower and the ideological zeal of the church to extend Spanish influence and to get indigenous people to align themselves to the Spanish Empire. And at this point, in the 1590s, the Floridians have basically abandoned their effort at expanding to the north and south. All of those efforts have somehow failed, and now the new direction of travel is to the west. So the colonists used Christian missions, trade, and also threats, coercion, threats of violence to gain power over tribes to the west, basically extending across what's now northern Florida. And they wanted to secure a pathway extending from St. Augustine over into western Florida and the Gulf Coast, the area around what we now know as Tallahassee and Pensacola. And they called this overland route to the west Camino Real, or the Royal Pathway. And this could serve, they hoped, as a crucial communication link in this larger prospective route that I talked about before, going from Mexico to the Atlantic and from there back to Europe. And they used their influence and force and threats of force to coerce Timucuan peoples to relocate onto a basically a band or chain of mission sites stretching from St. Augustine to the site of what had been Anhaika, the old Appalachian Kingdom capital, basically at what's now Tallahassee. And they built a large mission at the site of Anhaika, which they called Mission San Luis de Appalachia. And over time, the town that developed around this large mission came to be called Tallahassee, which means uh, the old town. It's just a phrase meaning the old town in Muscogean languages, so the language group spoken by Appalachian, Creek, Choctaw. So you see this new sort of orientation and this new sphere of Spanish influence basically running from St. Augustine westward into what's now the Florida Panhandle. And all kinds of indigenous peoples had to decide and weigh and judge how to respond to this new developing situation in the 1590s and the early 1600s. So I'll just talk about three examples of significant or revealing indigenous tribes in Florida that got caught up in this massive sort of power realignment in the missionary era and that have been examined to some degree by historians and archaeologists. So I'll just discuss briefly the Potano, the Ocale, and the Aquera. So firstly, the Potano were a tribe in north-central Florida, basically just north of what's now Ocala. They were a Timucuan tribe, speaking the Timucuan language. And they're a significant group because we know that they were a significant power in the region who fought against the French colonizers when there was briefly a French colony in 1564 to 65. So they were known as an adversary of the French and their allies in that period. They briefly lost a, a military power struggle in that period. But then that that might have then made them sort of natural allies to the Spanish after the Spanish destroyed the French fortress. But that's not apparently what happened. They continued to fight against Spanish encroachment as well. And in 1584, they were able to kill an important Spanish military captain. 
So the Spanish then mustered their forces and counterattacked. They destroyed Potano settlements and forced them to flee westward. And they then resettled at the site of Fox Pond, basically just northwest of today's Gainesville. Through the rest of the 1580s, Franciscan missionaries did make occasional visits and try to appeal to the Potano people at their main town, but they could not set up any permanent mission. But just a few years later, in 1601, it seems there was a turning point. And in that year, a new young chieftain came to power who wanted to stop the sort of back-and-forth, tit-for-tat hostility between the Potano and the Spanish. It seems like many indigenous leaders, he saw a certain advantage to accepting a Spanish mission, that this could give them diplomatic alignment and protection from Spain. It could get them certain important trade goods and technologies like glass, iron tools, and iron weapons. It could get them information through channels of communication. And so he sees an opportunity to change the Potano policy. And apparently he traveled with his retinue to St. Augustine and offered, in the Spanish view, offered submission to Spain. But this sort of diplomatic encounter could be very ambiguous, right? To the indigenous people, it might have been seen more as a sort of carefully negotiated treaty between equals involving a military alliance, but the Spanish viewed it as sort of uh, recognizing Spanish superiority as a civilized Christian nation and the submission by the Potanos. So this is this, you know, the sort of ambiguity that could always happen. Regardless of how you describe it, they work out a military alignment and they arrange to have a Catholic mission placed in the Potano town. And this was followed through on then in 1606 when the first permanent mission or so-called doctrina was founded in the Potano territory and it was called San Francisco de Potano. And it seems that within the first year or so, about a thousand members of the tribe were baptized. And that was what was reported just a year later in 1607. So you can see here the Franciscan missionaries really uh, like to act fast and get big numbers. But increasingly, after that point, as the Potano are pulled more deeply into the Spanish orbit, the Spanish start to make labor demands through a system they called repartimiento, which was similar to the encomiendas that had been carried out in the Caribbean and South America. But it tried to be maybe a little more flexible and to sort of negotiate the terms, but still the Spanish claimed the right to demand labor for a certain number of days in the year from the people of the tribe. And over time, this demand for labor combined with repeated outbreaks of disease led to suffering and anger. The population, it seems, of the Potano was about 3,000 as of 1650, and this is probably somewhat diminished from what it had been before. And as they suffer demographically and they become more and more disillusioned and embittered with Spanish control, in 1656, the Potano joined into a massive Timucua revolt, where many different Timucuan tribes across Florida that had accepted some sort of unequal partnership with Spain now tried to throw off the Spanish yoke 
drive back Spanish power and end their repartimiento. But the Spanish were able to suppress the revolt and it failed after about nine months. Many towns and missions were destroyed, but then were later rebuilt in the aftermath of the war. And the Spanish, you can see as taking advantage of the situation that through the course of this war, they destroyed and displaced many towns and villages, which then once they regained power over the population, they were able to basically relocate people again to selected mission sites along the Camino Real and to try to use them as sort of human infrastructure for the empire. But this didn't work for very long because all of this violence, disruption, and repeated disease epidemics just further reduced the Timucuan population until they just didn't have the power anymore, even just to secure this route of the Camino Real. And the Potano in particular suffered a severe disease epidemic of an unknown nature in 1672. By 1675, their population was reduced to only 160. So just a tiny fraction of what it had been 25 years earlier. And the population was clustered basically just around two very small mission towns. So with these populations like the Potano and other Tumukuin tribes so much diminished, they had to secure and exploit this zone of territory in a different way. And they basically moved in Spanish colonists and animals into this area instead. So the Spanish government granted tracts of land around Tumukua territory to colonists to set up cattle ranches. The, the land in this area was sort of subtropical savanna, reasonably conducive to cattle ranching. But the Indians, of course, complained about cattle encroaching and eating their crops, which was a common problem all around the European empires in the Americas, that the Native Americans depended on certain territories for hunting and fishing, and those could be encroached upon and really destroyed as European domesticated animals encroached and crowded out the local ecosystem. So there's this sort of tense and ambiguous situation here in the late 1600s where it's unclear whether the Spanish even really benefit from or will want to maintain these relationships from these massively weakened and diminished tribes, or if they'll just try to somehow colonize it with cattle ranches. Now, before this was resolved in the 1680s, other Indian groups began to invade the region from the north, and these were largely allied with the English, who now had created colonies of their own, not just in Virginia, but further down the Atlantic coast into what the Spanish considered their territory. So the English start to play upon and use their own relationships and alliances with Indian nations and use them as advanced raiders to harass and weaken the whole Spanish mission system in Florida. In particular, materially, what, they, what the English stood to gain from these attacks was captives for the slave trade. So many Timucuan Indians and other indigenous people around Florida were harassed, raided, and then often taken captive and forcibly removed up to Charleston in the new colony of South Carolina and sold as slaves. 
and the Potano in particular suffered from these raids until basically the group was so diminished and so vulnerable to this danger that they simply dissolved and had to move and migrate and merge into other Indian groups. Right? They had to consolidate in order to keep up enough numbers to defend themselves. So this is probably what became of the Potano, and maybe some of these refugees even went all the way to St. Augustine. Now, these raids and attacks continued to weaken and sap what was left of the mission system until basically in the early years of the 1700s, between 1700 and 1704, what remained of the mission system, almost all of it, finally collapsed under the attacks of the English and the, their main ally, the Yamasee tribe. And in 1706, Yamasee and English allies came down into central Florida and destroyed the last remaining Potano mission. So the Potano were just one of many Timucuan tribes, but they, it seems, were more significant than most, and we can reconstruct here what eventually became of them. Now, secondly, as for the Okale, the Okale were a little bit further to the southwest, basically in what we now know as West Central Florida. They were not Timucuan. Rather, in terms of their customs, their artwork, they were part of the so-called safety harbor culture region. So basically the west central zone centering around the Tocobaga, where people basically adopted the art forms, the mound building systems, and possibly even the language, too, of the Tocobaga people. The Okali were mentioned in some very early travel accounts and reports from the mid-1500s, and they were said to be politically subject to the Tokobaga. So there was some sort of little empire or confederation with the Tokobaga at its center, and the Okali were basically at the northern edge of that domain. The Okali were in unusual as a non-Tamukua tribe that was pulled into the Spanish orbit. So they were one of these groups kind of on the fringe of the Spanish domain that had different language, different culture and identity. And we don't know exactly how or why, but in 1597, a group of delegates, a, a sort of joint delegation of Ocale and Aquera leaders from these two tribes traveled together to St. Augustine. And similarly, they offered some sort of obeisance, some sort of advantageous but unequal alliance with the Spanish, and they asked for missionaries to be placed in their territories. And again, we, we can't say exactly why they did that, but in the case of the Ocale, it may have been that they saw that as a way to separate themselves and throw off the domination of the Tocobaga. So in the early 1600s, a Spanish mission was founded in a major Ocale town, but this then provoked the anger and fear of neighboring tribes that were non-Christian and that opposed the Spanish expansion. So non-Christian tribes, mainly Tocobaga and Pohoy, then attacked and killed many of the Christian Indians in the Ocale. And in response, Spanish and Christian Indian allies retaliated against them and killed various leaders of the Tocobaga and Pohoy and basically drastically undermining their entire political system, as they had previously done already to the Colusa. Now later, after that point, after about 1620, the 
Spanish records show very few mentions in their communications, and it seems that the Ocali basically just disappeared and faded away as a group, and they probably again dissolved and merged with other neighboring groups. As for where they went, it's reasonable to suppose that probably some of them went and joined that other tribe that I already mentioned, that it seems had some sort of special relationship with the Ocali, and that's the Aquera. So the Aquera were a little farther north in north-central Florida, and it seems that their original homeland was along the Oklawaha River and around Lake Ware, basically just east of what's today Ocala. And the Aquera were Timucuan. They were basically a tribe at the very far southern edge of the Timucuan zone, they are mentioned in reports about the Hernando de Soto Entrada back in 1530, and they're named as being a fairly strong group that was able to repel Spanish raids from de Soto. They were also known for trading in pearls, which is interesting because they're more or less right in the middle of the Floridian Peninsula, so they must have somehow managed long-distance trade networks that moved maritime goods so as I mentioned before, in 1597, their delegates go to St. Augustine and offer some sort of submission to the Spanish. A Spanish mission was set up later than which lasts from 1612 to 1620. After that one was abandoned, two other Catholic missions followed, one of them in the main central town of the Aquera. But the Spanish report that the Aquera were very skeptical and resistant towards the Christian gospel, more so than other tribes. And it seems that they had traditional religious or spiritual leaders, people that we might roughly call shamans, although that's not an indigenous American term. But they had these religious leaders who continued to practice and continued to be very powerful all through the 1600s. And it seems that the Aquera maybe took on a sort of special role, seeing themselves as kind of spiritual or shamanic leaders for all the indigenous people of the region. It was part of their identity, and it might be related to their name, Aquera, which in Timucuan apparently means keepers of time or ancient ones. And it seems that the Aquera persisted through the 1600s, and their territory came to serve as a refuge for migrants who were fleeing southward from the repartimiento labor mandates and from the war in 1656. And by 1677, the main town and the main leader of the Aquera came to be called Yabahica, which apparently means the shaman's town. And a few years later, by 1680, the two remaining Catholic missions in their territory were abandoned. And in the last decades of the 1600s, when most Timucua tribes were dramatically losing population, dwindling down to just one small town or village, it seems that the Aquera maintained relatively greater demographic strength. They had a main town at what's now Lake Care, and art and artifacts have been found there which are overwhelmingly indigenous. There are some European beads and pottery, but much less than at the mission sites farther north. So it seems that the Aquera had less contact and exchange with the Spanish than other Timucuan people did. And the foundations have been discovered of the Santa Lucia mission in Aquera, 
but it has been found that there were very few burials there. So it seems that it's true that most people of the tribe did not convert to Christianity. So they stand out as a sort of persistent center of continuing in indigenous life and resistance to Christianization. It's not clear what happened to them. They also disappear from the written record after 1700, once that sort of final onslaught and disaster strikes northern Florida. There's some chance that they may have persisted through that time, and if so, it's likely that they eventually joined into the Seminole group, the sort of new indigenous confederation that formed later in the 1700s, and I'll mention them some more later. So if we back up again and look at the broad view, there was reason to think in the early 1600s, it seemed as if Florida was succeeding by the strategic use of this mission system and that they would be able to create a corridor of communication and trade across the land and as part of that create a sort of cordon sanitaire, a kind of defensive barrier to stop northern European encroachment down into Florida. But all kinds of problems then intervened in the mid and late 1600s that gradually ruined and finally destroyed the mission system. So a major early factor in the breakdown of the system was the arrival of new diseases. So there had always been certain diseases that had plagued the Spanish colony in Florida, such as smallpox and measles, common crowd diseases that ran rampant in the early modern era. But then the first yellow fever outbreak hit Florida in 1649-51. So yellow fever had been an old world disease. It had not been seen before in the Americas, and it was first carried, it seems, from Africa to the Americas, probably by slave trading vessels, in 1648. And then it hit St. Augustine just the following year, and probably was carried in mosquito larvae that were kept alive in ships' water casks that sailed and docked at St. Augustine in 1649, and it then proceeded to infect both the population and the mosquito population living in the, the swamps and the standing water. So this severe outbreak of yellow fever was then quickly followed by opportunistic outbreaks, again of measles and smallpox, and there were then repeated infestations of yellow fever over and over again in Florida for the next 250 years. And usually each time yellow fever appeared, there would be an outbreak that would infect several hundred people and would kill several dozen of them. And it would feed off of what St. Augustine was, which was a crowded, dense town right near a swamp. So from the point of view of today, it might seem ridiculous. Why would you have a dense, packed town right next to a bunch of swamps? But politically and militarily, they really had no choice. They had to have a densely packed town that could be defended and fortified, and that was surrounded by difficult terrain that wasn't easily approached and attacked. So they were really stuck, you could say, between a rock and a hard place. And for these reasons, the combination of the disease environment and the military threat, it was really impossible for St. Augustine to grow significantly all through the rest of the 1600s and even the early 1700s. 
Then following on the heels of that, of course, there was, as I said before, the Timucua Rebellion in 1656-7, which led to more loss of population, a great deal of flight to the north, the west, or the south, and the weakening of the defensive chain along the Camino Real, even after the mission sites had been rebuilt. And then on the heels of that, there was increasing encroachment by Northern Europeans, by the English and the French. There was piracy and raiding in 1668. St. Augustine was sacked by pirates. And then there was the increasingly concerted and organized campaign by the English and the Yamasee Confederation to, to harass, undermine, and weaken Florida. And this really took off after 1670, when the English created a permanent colony called Carolina, centered at the town of Charleston. And the Yamasee began raiding further and further afield to the west and to the south into Florida. And they preyed upon the increasingly weakened tribes in Florida. And this had a really tremendous destructive effect on the colony. But the Spanish did not take this completely passively. There were certain things they could do to try to counteract this growing threat, and it prompted a wave of new fortification around the colony. And first and foremost, the Spanish began the building of El Castillo, or formerly El Castillo de San Marcos. So in 1672, the government began building a new up-to-date fortress on the mainland side of the harbor of St. Augustine. So rather than at the, the mouth of the harbor on a barrier island, they put it on the mainland, maybe because that would be more defensible from sea attack, where these raiders, these pirates and privateers were coming from. And they call it, as I said, El Castillo de San Marcos. And it's designed to have very high walls and strong corner bastions from which they can fire off cannons. And it's made out of coquina, that soft, porous limestone of compressed shell layers. And it took 23 years to finish. It was a massive project for such a small colony. And it finally was completed and went into service in 1695, which was fortunate because this was just before the beginning of a war with England. And when the English attacked St. Augustine and tried to take the fortress in 1701, the tremendous engineering advantage of the fort was revealed, which is that the coquina could absorb cannonball impacts rather than splitting. So it may seem as if if you have a, a fortress, you want strong, rigid stone, but a rigid material may gradually crack and crumble, which is what would happen under continuing cannon fire. But the coquina is soft and porous, and so it could just absorb these impacts without opening a fissure. And the fortress was built in order to make up for the apparent softness of the stone. It was built with especially thick walls, and it was found to be basically impenetrable. And that's largely why the fortress still stands there today, even after having been attacked and besieged so many times. Also further to the west, the Spanish could no longer rely on the strength of these aligned Christian indigenous groups, so they began to fortify to the west as well, and they built a fortress called San Marcos de Apalache near the mouth of the Walcala River, basically south of Tallahassee, close to the Gulf Coast. 
and it was a wooden fortress that could house 400 Appalachian warriors and 25 European soldiers, and it basically could control the coastal route along the Gulf Coast. Now, finally, the last really important new strategic position that the Spanish took up was Pensacola, which was another colonial town founded in 1698 on what we call Pensacola Bay. So this was the same basic site where the Spanish had attempted, but after a few years failed to create a colony back in the 1550s. But they returned now after 140 years to again to attempt to create a colony on Pensacola Bay. And in this case, they were motivated also largely by the French. So the English had created the Carolina colony, which was now a near neighbor and a threat to Florida on the Atlantic coast. But on the Gulf, the French had now sent parties and explorers all the way down the Mississippi to the Gulf Coast and were clearly making, were scouting out and preparing to plant a colony somewhere on the Gulf Coast near the Mississippi Delta. So the Spanish are now seeing another threat to the West. And so they preempt by sending out uh, explorers to quickly survey the area in 1693 to 94. And these scouts and explorers made very exaggerated reports about the richness and hospitable environment. And so the Spanish crown invested then in creating a colony on Pensacola Bay in 1698, managing to get there just one year before the French founded their colony at Biloxi in 1699. And the Spanish initially set up a presidio, basically a fortified complex with a Christian mission, a fortress with barracks, and a civilian village on the mainland shore of Pensacola Bay. They found that the environment was not nearly so paradisal as it had been described. It had poor soil for agriculture, extreme heat in the summer, tropical diseases. But nonetheless, the Presidio hung on to existence through the early 1700s. And the European colonists at Pensacola, even more so than in St. Augustine, were overwhelmingly male. And so they had sexual and domestic relations with mainly indigenous women and also captive or free African women. And often this led then to intermarriage, which again was encouraged by the church, which tried to cement a, a Catholic society and to evangelize the neighboring indigenous people. And so the result was a highly mixed and stratified Creole society in Pensacola. So while it was very mixed, we should remember, of course, that doesn't mean it was egalitarian, right? People still had higher or lower social status and different legal statuses based on the amount of European ancestry that they had. But it was, nonetheless, it was a very mixed society in which all people were recognized as having some sort of basic rights and protections as Catholics if they were baptized. So even more so than St. Augustine, Pensacola becomes this kind of multiracial Creole society. And so in sum, by 1700, you can see the formation of a somewhat firmly planted colonial society anchored by two main towns, with St. Augustine in the east and Pensacola in the west. But in between, the chain of missions had been decimated, and most of them abandoned by this time. 
and so the colony was increasingly exposed and vulnerable to attack from the north. And this really came dramatically into play when in November 1700, the King of Spain, Charles II, the last ruler of the Habsburg dynasty, died and died without a clear heir. And this led to a succession crisis over who would replace him on the Spanish throne. And the succession crisis pulled in the fears and the interests of various other European nations, which then jumped in to the dispute, and it led to a massive war, which in, in some ways you can see as kind of the first pan-European war, or the, the first global war, practically, really. So this was called the War of the Spanish Succession, with Spain and France on one side supporting the Bourbon claimant to the throne, Philip, and various other powers, including England, opposing them. And this War of the Spanish Succession dragged on from 1701 to 1714, and it created a new kind of escalated threat, particularly to Florida, which was now right on the front lines of inter-imperial competition between Spain, England, and France. So as Philip, the Bourbon claimant, takes up rulership in Spain, he seeks to continue the militarization of the empire that had begun earlier in the 1600s, especially in these frontier zones like, like Florida. The attacks by the English and the Yamasi into Florida only continue and intensify. And furthermore, the English, as the Yamasi are gradually diminished in power by violence, warfare, disease, the English and their trading emissaries increasingly make unofficial alliances with the Creeks. And they use the Creeks, again, basically as pawns to harass and undermine Florida. But the English also get into the fight more directly themselves. And in 1702, the English Colonel James Moore raided and besieged St. Augustine. And although he was not able to capture the town, he did destroy and burn missions around the immediate vicinity around St. Augustine. Pensacola was besieged twice in 1707 by mainly Creek warriors. Various Timucua and Appalachie villages that were remaining were destroyed. And the wooden fortress at San Marcos de Appalache was abandoned and burned by the Spanish as they withdrew so that it wouldn't be taken into Creek or English hands. And this new attack into Florida caused a chain reaction. So various Indians who were under threat from the English and the Creeks those who had not aligned themselves with the English, fled southward into Florida, particularly the Wale, this tribe in what's now Georgia that had been traditionally more Christian and more Spanish aligned. They flee down into Florida. They then encroach upon and displace the remaining Timucua. The Timucua then go into Spanish strongholds, mainly St. Augustine, for protection. And the nearby missions in the sort of immediate vicinity around St. Augustine are moved in, are relocated inside the town in the early 1700s. So you have in now a, an increasingly retrenched and concentrated base of power, mainly in St. Augustine, and an increasingly dense and crowded town, which has to somehow grow and develop. 
And this town is withstanding repeated attacks through the War of the Spanish Succession. Now, after 1720, when the war now is over and Spain has some time and some resources to rebuild and reimagine St. Augustine, there's a period of rebuilding growth and investment in the fabric of the town. And this is where the town starts to take the sort of look and form that in some places, in some respects, it still has to this day. So the town had always, from the beginning, been laid out as a simple grid with a central plaza and a church, which was the custom throughout the Spanish Empire for colonial towns to have this sort of ordered layout centering on a sacred public space. But beyond that, it had been fairly disorderly. There wasn't a great deal of infrastructure. The buildings were generally wood and thatch. They were very vulnerable to fire. There were repeated fires that destroyed parts of the town. But after 1720, as there's renewed investment, there's more wealth and the officers and merchants of the town start to replace these wooden houses with large houses in a new and distinctive local style that sort of comes to define St. Augustine. They build these houses with thick walls of coquina stone, almost like mimicking the Castillo in miniature. They build them with thick walls of coquina stone, which are then covered over with white paint or stucco. The floors are built of a sort of light sand and shell-based concrete, which can keep cool in the heat of Florida. They're usually built with upper floors that then have long balconies and verandas to allow for outdoor air circulation and shade over the windows and doorways. And some of the larger ones are built also with courtyards for greater shade and air circulation. And it seems that at least 12 houses that were built in this style between the 1710s and the 1760s still stand. There surely were many others as well that are long gone, but there are, as far as I can find, at least 12 specimens still there. And as part of this building wave also, the Franciscan order built a very large new friary building in the same sort of style, just even bigger with large long verandas and woodwork and white stucco. This building also still stands and is today known as the St. Francis Barracks because it later was taken over as a, a military residence. So the look of St. Augustine is changing dramatically and you're starting to see the, the emergence of a more permanent and in its own way kind of elegant colonial town fabric. And along with that, of course, it goes hand in hand with the emergence of an increasingly wealthy and genteel elite class, which manages sort of large households with extended families and servants. Now, meanwhile, in Pensacola, Pensacola also hangs on but has a much harder go of it. And it becomes a continuing battleground that is more vulnerable. So after the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, there is a sort of uneasy but reasonably lasting truce between Spain and Britain, at least for a few decades, that allows for this rebuilding. But relations with France are more complicated, and the French more and more are the threat to the West. The Presidio that I mentioned on the mainland of Pensacola Bay is captured 
by the French in 1719. So politics had realigned very suddenly in 1719, where Spain, back in Europe, tried to retake old territories that they had lost in the Mediterranean, mainly in Sicily. But as they make this move to try to retake control of those lands, a coalition forms that sort of gangs up against them, and it includes France. So France, which had been their ally just a few years before, now turns against them. And very suddenly in 1719, the French governor of Louisiana, Bienville, suddenly showed up in Pensacola Bay with a fleet, and they coordinated a pincer attack with French-aligned Indians who showed up on the mainland. So almost out of nowhere, the Presidio is surrounded on both sides, and the Spanish commander was totally taken off guard because reportedly he didn't even know that war had been declared. It was that sudden, and the French got the jump on them, and the Spanish had to surrender on the understanding that the residents could stay in the town and the Spanish soldiers could peaceably leave and evacuate the barracks. The French then occupied Pensacola for three years, from 1719 to 1722. But after the colony was hit by an enormous destructive hurricane in 1722, the French simply abandoned and burned much of the town as they left, again, to try to prevent the Spanish from retaking it. So the Spanish then moved back into Pensacola Bay and refounded a new presidio at a different site on Santa Rosa Island, on a barrier island, maybe because they thought that would be more defensible from Indian attack from the mainland. But this Presidio too was hit by tremendous devastating hurricanes in 1741 and 1752. And so that one also was abandoned and the colonists moved back again to the mainland. And they created another Presidio in 1754 called San Miguel de Panzacola. So this was technically the first time that this name Pensacola was used formally as an official place name. And this third Presidio on the mainland was basically on the site of the present-day city of Pensacola. And it grew over the following few years to become a somewhat prosperous regional port, largely through trade with the French and the British, which technically was illegal and was very politically fraught, but Spanish merchants and the Spanish state simply couldn't supply the market demands of Pensacola, and so instead they traded, or in the official terminology, smuggled with the French and the British. And so, really, although it was technically a Spanish stronghold, their actual tie to Spain was very weak. They really had to sort of see to their own needs and interests, and they were fairly isolated out there far to the west, more connected in many ways to the French colony in Louisiana. So again, this is the situation as it sort of restabilized again in the mid-1700s with this sort of colony in some degree of renewal centering around these two main poles of St. Augustine and Pensacola and now relying really more on investment and involvement from Spain and, and also from a new developing Creole elite within the towns. 
Now, as for the indigenous people, as I said, they have been just tremendously devastated by the events, by the warfare, by the political exploitation, by the disease outbreaks of the 16 and 1700s. But more and more new groups are coming into Florida in the 1700s that see some sort of opportunity to exploit the natural environment and to make new alliances and new political formations. So the details of exactly how this happened are unclear, right? Because the indigenous people themselves did not produce written records. And a lot of this new process of migration and reorganization happened outside of Spanish control and probably outside Spanish awareness. So the details are very unclear, but it seems that the mass migration began particularly with groups of Creek Indians, especially Lower Creek Indians from the area that's now Alabama. And these Lower Creeks were escaping, for one thing, from the domination of the Upper Creeks, and there was a lot of ongoing tension and feuding between Upper and Lower Creeks. I mentioned this before in my lecture about Tulsa, this is how one of these creek towns ended up migrating west and becoming Tulsa, Oklahoma. But other smaller tribes and villages moved south. They wanted to get away from the domination of the upper creeks and also did not want to align with the British or the Spanish either. So for whatever reason, they had judged that it was not wise or advantageous to try to, as, you know, as many other tribes had done before, to try to gain an upper hand by making alliance with the European powers. So instead, they withdraw southward, and these creeks then begin to attract allies, including renegade Yamasis, who no longer subscribed to this alliance with the British, and other groups such as Yuchis, and also escaped Africans. So enslaved African laborers in both Carolina and Florida who ran away and joined or formed relationships with these Indian groups. And as these various groups coalesced, their presence, the, the sort of emergence of a new power in the interior of Florida, it emerges in the written record later, in the later 1700s, but almost surely it has its roots earlier, in this crisis time of the early 1700s. And as the group forms, they also begin, it seems most likely, although it's not totally certain, they also begin to absorb the remaining surviving Timucua groups from around St. Augustine and northeastern and north-central Florida into this emerging confederation. We know that in the later 1700s, the name of this confederation emerges as the Seminole. We don't know exactly when they took up that name. It probably was sometime earlier in the 1700s, and we do not know for sure the derivation or origin of that name Seminole, but it is reasonable to suppose that it probably derives from the Spanish word Cimarron, meaning a runaway. This probably reflects the role, the early role, of escaped enslaved African people who went into the interior and took part in the formation of this confederation. So basically, you know, runaway slaves, African captives, who managed to leave European colonies and set up their own independent communities. They were called Cimarron in Spanish, Marron in French, Maroon in English. 
And this, this word probably then was transformed into this new form, seminal, to describe this sort of larger conf confederation that was forming in Florida. So again, that was most likely already happening and well on its way by 1750, but we don't know much about it until later, until they start to confront and come into conflict with the European powers. So again, the colony is going through these transformations and these repeated crises all through this Bourbon period, right, under the Spanish Bourbon dynasty. But it seems that there was particularly a crucial turning point in the 1730s, right? So at the time when the two towns are developing, being rebuilt, the Seminole Confederation is probably forming, there was a renewed and intensified turn to militarization and retrenchment in Spanish Florida. And it can seem strange that this happened in a time of peace, basically, when Spain was fairly secure and at peace with both Britain and France. But it probably happened largely in response to the rapid growth of the Carolinas as they became an increasingly powerful, prosperous slave plantation colony and then the founding of Georgia, of another British colony, even further to the south in 1733. So more and more right into that direct zone that the Spanish considered their backyard. So it was probably because of this provocation of British expansion that the Bourbon government really redoubled their efforts at militarizing and fortifying Florida. In 1738, the Spanish reoccupied and rebuilt San Marcos de Apalache over on the Gulf Coast near Tallahassee. They reoccupy that site and begin building a new fortress, this time out of stone, not wood and earthworks. Also in the same year, in 1738, the governor of Florida, Montiano, granted a large plot of land two miles north of St. Augustine to a company of about 100 free African people. And this group, it seems, was led by a militia captain named Francisco Menendez, who was a veteran of the Yamasee Wars of the early 1700s. And on this plot of land, they form a fortified town with a fortress and barracks, which was called Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, or very often just for short called Mose. And Mose, it seems, was the first known African-led town created anywhere in mainland North America. And this was part of this effort, again, to, to fortify and defend the vulnerable northern flank of Florida. But it was not a spontaneous move, just sort of pulled out of the air by the governor Montiano. It was the culmination of a very long process. So the town was long in the making. And it emerged from the differences in terms of practices and policies of slavery between the Spanish Empire and the British. So Spain had different laws and practices about slavery and enslaved people from what we might think of in the British world. The masters of slaves were traditionally expected to Christianize them, whereas that was still taboo in the English and Dutch colonies. The, the Spanish, going back all the way to the practice of slavery in the Middle Ages in the 12-1300s, they were expected to Christianize slaves, baptize them into the church, 
often they were expected to act as godparents to these newly baptized slaves or to their children. And they were required to recognize and protect marriages and family relationships among enslaved people, which was not done in the English and British Empire. And ideally, under the Spanish viewpoint, ideally slaves ought to ultimately become free and they ought to then blend into the general population. As I said, intermarriage, mestizaje, was encouraged. And so in the Spanish Empire already by the late 1600s, there were far more free people of color than in other colonial empires like the British or the Dutch. And it seems that in Florida, there was a, an African community of both enslaved and free people right from the beginning. You know, I mentioned one free African woman who married in St. Augustine in 1565. And so they were a significant presence in the population of the colony, and it seemed they had formed a militia unit by 1683. And this was significant because it implied a recognition that they were free subjects of the empire and that they had a certain basic degree of social rights and status that they could bear arms. These are probably some of the reasons then that some enslaved Africans from the British colony in Carolina fled not just into the interior, not to the indigenous nations, but southward to Florida. And the earliest known for certain were escapees who made it all the way from Carolina to St. Augustine in 1687. And once they were there, they were put to work on helping to build the Castillo. And it seems they were paid wages for this work, which again is something that you wouldn't see <laughs> with enslaved people in the British Empire. When English officials came to St. Augustine in order to reclaim them, the governor refused, and his reason was that he wouldn't give them back because they had become Catholics. They had been baptized into the Catholic Church, and so he did not trust that their religious faith would be respected if they were returned to British territory. So, you know, it sets up this odd situation and this odd precedent, which is similar to what was going on at the same time in the Caribbean in places like Puerto Rico, where if an enslaved person managed to escape, say from the Virgin Islands across the water to Puerto Rico, and they told the Spanish, I came here because I want to be free, the Spanish would send them back. But if they landed on the shore and said, I've come to Puerto Rico because I want to be a Catholic, then they would be able to stay and would not be sent back. So this similar precedent emerges then in Florida that if enslaved people can manage to get to Florida and then they embrace Catholicism, they will then have the chance to stay in the colony and very likely to become free because that was easier and more customary in Spanish society than British. And a few years later in 1693, the Spanish crown formalized this practice with a decree where the king made a proclamation, quote, giving liberty to all the men as well as the women, so that by their example and by my liberality, others will do the same. So he's explicitly, the crown is explicitly saying here, we will recognize the, the freedom of these escapees in order to encourage more people to do the same. 
But nonetheless, it was still unclear whether this was just a one-off or a temporary policy or a permanent policy. It was sort of in limbo. But in the 1730s, as the stream of, of escapees increases, it is codified into law. So at that point, the crown encodes the policy that those who make it to St. Augustine will be required to labor for the crown, as those early arrivals had when they were put to work on the Castillo. They will have to labor for the crown for four years, and then they will be granted permanent freedom. Spanish officials were forbidden from paying any reimbursement or compensation to the English, basically saying, we don't even recognize your claim on these people as slaves, and they would be expected to convert. And it seems that many or all of them did convert into the Catholic Church. But we should note that surely a significant portion of them were already Catholic. There, there had been Portuguese evangelization in Central and Southern Africa, Congo and Angola, and a lot of the enslaved people in the Carolinas came from those countries and were almost certainly already Catholic before they even got to Florida. But regardless of that, Florida was becoming more and more a social and political battleground between the different empires, and the Spanish sought to take advantage of the vulnerability of the British that existed because of their heavy reliance on slave labor, which could not be politically and socially loyal to the British. So they're taking advantage of this, and you could see as a kind of reversal, uh, a, a a kind of clever revenge for the British, the long-standing British policy of undermining Florida through Indian alliances. But in this way, you can see the foundation of this new town of Mose was not simply an act of beneficence or humanitarianism. It was strategic. It would, it would attract more runaways into Florida and hence sap the manpower of the British colony, and also would then serve as a buffer to help protect the northern flank of Florida against British or other attacks. And in this way, it was similar, again, to what other colonies had done, such as in New Amsterdam, where the Dutch West India Company granted tracts of land to free African people in Manhattan, just north of the town of New Amsterdam, basically in the zone that's now Greenwich Village. They gave out parcels of land to Africans, but not just not out of the goodness of their hearts, but on the understanding that they would then serve as a frontline buffer against hostile Indian nations like the Mohawk. So it was a similar sort of strategy to help create a bulwark and at the same time destabilize the British colonies. And it seems that this strategy almost surely bore fruit, because in just the following year, after the foundation of Mose, in September 1739, the Stono Rebellion took place, which was the largest rebellion ever to happen, largest slave rebellion ever to take place in the British colonies before the American Revolution, where a large group of slaves in South Carolina rebelled, withdrew, marched southward, apparently with the aim of crossing into Florida, but they were intercepted before they got there. So Mose, it seems, did survive and even flourish for a time, 
but it was in the line of fire of inter-imperial warfare, which then broke out again between Britain and Spain in the 1740s in the War of the Austrian Succession. So the fortress at Mose, it seems, was abandoned and destroyed during that war in the 1740s, but it then was reoccupied and rebuilt in 1752 and was inhabited for another 11 years. Also during the same war, St. Augustine itself was blockaded and briefly besieged by Oglethorpe, the British governor of Georgia, for 39 days, but it was able to withstand that temporary blockade. And in response, after the British withdrew in 1742, the Spanish built another fortress out of Coquina, just south of St. Augustine, called Fort Matanzas, which would be able to stop blockades, blocking the outlet to the sea. So all in all, through these various crises and through the warfare of the 1740s, the Spanish were able to hold up successfully against attacks from the British and to hold their ground. And the colony did not fall through the War of the Austrian Succession in the 1740s and then again during the Seven Years' War in the early 1760s when Spain again went to war against Britain. So this was a remarkable success for what had been a very vulnerable, precarious, under-resourced colony, but these Bourbon efforts had apparently borne fruit. And moreover, their successful defense of Florida was part of a broader, fairly impressively successful war effort against the British in the early 1760s. So in the Seven Years' War, Spain actually did fairly well, considering that it was viewed as an old declining decadent power as opposed to the new growing dynamo of Great Britain, they actually put up a pretty good fight in the Seven Years' War. But the big exception was that the British fleet captured Havana in Cuba from the Spanish in 1762. And with the fall of Havana, basically Spain now couldn't effectively control all of Cuba and their communication between Mexico and Spain was threatened by this new British stronghold at Havana. So this was an enormous crisis for Spain, and it forced the Spanish to come to the bargaining table and work out some sort of arrangement, both with the British and with their allies, the French, that could compel the British to hand back control of Havana back to Spain. So in this very complicated three-way diplomatic negotiation, Spain agreed to give up Florida in return for getting back control of Havana. So Florida never fell. It never fell to the British or the French, with the exception of Pensacola for a few years in, in French hands. But it was traded away as part of this diplomatic arrangement because it was not understood to be as valuable as Cuba. And furthermore, the rest of the continent experienced a reshuffling. So Spain and France, they had fought together. Uh, they were both ruled by Bourbon kings who were relatives. They fought together as allies against the British, but they had very different goals and priorities. And the French actually wanted to bow out of the fight sooner than the Spanish did. The Spanish felt that they were doing okay and they could keep going. 
So they had to work out a deal by which Spain would agree to withdraw and make peace with Britain. And so Spain and France worked out the Treaty of Fontainebleau. And that treaty involved France partitioning Louisiana. So the French now had a, a large colony up and down the Mississippi Valley and controlling a lot of the Gulf Coast, which they called Louisiana. But in this treaty, France agreed to give up all of Louisiana. And the town of New Orleans and the western side of the Mississippi would all be handed over to Spain. It basically would just become uh, an annex to Mexico. So that was handed over to Spain, but east of the Mississippi, apart from New Orleans, east of the Mississippi, the colony running that had been French, running from Baton Rouge through Biloxi to Mobile, all of that would be handed over to the British as part of this final treaty with Britain. So France handed over that section, that eastern section of Louisiana, as well as all of French Canada, over to the British. And this was a big success for Britain because now Britain had uninterrupted, undivided, complete control over the entire eastern seaboard of North America, from Canada and Nova Scotia down through the so-called 13 colonies, through Georgia and to Florida, including all of what had been Spanish Florida and that eastern section of Louisiana. So they now had really more territory than they even knew what to do with. In February 1763, British officials went and formally took possession of all the fortresses in Florida, including at St. Augustine and Pensacola. The Spanish withdrew their garrisons, including the Company of Free Africans at Mose. They withdrew and mostly resettled in Cuba. So it reasonably seemed at this point that this was basically the end of Spanish civilization in Florida. And a lot of the civilians also withdrew down into the Spanish West Indies or Mexico in order to remain in a Catholic society rather than be under the rule of the Protestant British. And the British very soon took this chunk of territory running all the way from Baton Rouge on the Mississippi over to St. Augustine on the Atlantic and they split it into two chunks, into what they called East Florida, which basically was St. Augustine and what we now know as Florida, except Pensacola, and then West Florida, which would be Pensacola, Mobile, and over to Baton Rouge. And this began the British period in Florida. So I hope that next time I will talk about the the period of, of tumult when Florida was passed around multiple times among various different powers, eventually then becoming a United States state. But before I continue with that, with the story of Florida, I expect I'll post the next installment on Doorways in Time, the great archaeological finds, and that will be on Patreon for patrons. So if you want to have access to it, please sign up on Patreon, or you can support the podcast in other ways, such as through PayPal. If you want to use a different route like that, just email or comment. We can arrange that. But thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to my patrons soon. Thank you.